Okay, hello everyone. Um, we are live, just checking, looks like we're on. And I am so excited about my guest today. Um, we met maybe five, six years ago and just love, I'm so excited to introduce his new book and the work that Dr. Dale Bredesen is doing um, just to really change the landscape of Alzheimer's and dementia. Uh, so super excited to introduce him. And before I introduce him, just the little housekeeping bit, um, you can uh, find any information on blogs, things I've written at jillcarnian.com. We're now live on both YouTube and iTunes and anywhere you find podcasts. So you can hear this on all of those um, and listen at your leisure and it'll be posted in the next several days there. Um, like I said, lots and lots of other interviews that are available and lots of free blogs and writings um, there. So let me introduce my guest, Dr. Dale Bredesen. Um, Dr. Dale Bredesen is internationally recognized as an expert in the mechanisms of neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's and the author of a New York Times bestselling book, The End of Alzheimer's from Avery in 2017. Um, he's also the End of Alzheimer's program in 2020 authored that book, and he has held faculty positions at UC San Francisco, UCLA, and the University of California, San Diego, and directed the program on aging at the Burnham Institute before coming to the Buck Institute for Research on Aging in 1998 as its founding president and CEO. He's currently a professor at UCLA, um, and I think that's where I met you at the Buck Institute with one of your first events, uh, probably, like I said, five or six years ago. Just fascinating at how your research, I remember the um, inhalation Alzheimer's article. What was the title? That was the one that all of us in functional medicine first, what was the title of that published article that you had? Yeah, inhalational Alzheimer's disease uh, and an unrecognized and treatable uh, epidemic. And the idea was just basically what you've been seeing that uh, so many people actually have cognitive effects from being exposed to mycotoxins. And, and, and you know, we're seeing so many people who really you know, have Alzheimer's by all the criteria, PET scans, spinal fluid, et cetera. And they're, you know, of the many uh, contributors, um, often the dominant one is mycotoxins. Yeah. So, and again, that's my world and I see the same yes. thing. I don't consider myself an expert in Alzheimer's, but based on your research, I've certainly learned a lot. And I remember something you said, and correct me if this has changed, but at one point in some of your research groups, which we'll talk about today, some of your patients, um, you, you said that, especially the younger uh, patients presenting with Alzheimer's, there was about one in three that had some mycotoxin exposure. Does that still somewhat hold true? Yeah, if anything, it may have gone up some. Um, what we're seeing, and you know, when, when I was training way back, way back in the 80s, uh, we never saw people who were in their 40s and 50s uh, with Alzheimer's disease. This was late 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, but it's actually been shown, the epidemiology has shown that there is much more young Alzheimer's these days that has been increased. And when we look at those people, they're often late 40s, early 50s. Um, often around the time of menopause, as you know, or andropause. Mm -hmm. And these are people who often present differently. They often have some degree of depression. They often have uh, a non-amnestic presentation. Not always, but that's a common thing. And they, they, you know, they have uh, executive problems. They often will lose their jobs because they can't plan anymore. They can't execute anymore. They'll often have some dyscalculia. They'll ha they sometimes have a post uh, posterior uh, cerebral atrophy, so-called PCA or a PPA, uh, primary progressive aphasia, you know, word finding issues. So there, it's more of a biparietal than it is the classical bitemporal where you lose memory. Uh, and so often a different presentation. And these people usually turn out to have some form of toxicity. And the most common one, as you know, is mycotoxicity. Yeah. 
so, and I think this, you know, this really hadn't been recognized by the Alzheimer's community. So I think it's important for all of us to, to keep that in mind. As, as you know better than ever, anyone, you're a real world expert in this area. Thank you, Dr. Bredesen. And, and I just have the greatest respect for the work you're doing because it really is giving us solutions to something that we thought previously was kind of unsolvable, that we just you know assume these people have to put their affairs in order. And I, we don't see that as much anymore, especially when we catch it early. Um, my uh, I love seeing these people who are younger with toxic load because I feel like I can make the most change in them. Um, let's go back. I want to talk about your first work and just give a groundwork for the um, holes in the roof and the theory of Alzheimer's. But before I do, I want to hear your story of how did you get to be interested in this uh, area of study and how did what was your journey to get to the Buck Institute. Tell us just a little bit about how you yeah, got Yeah, thanks. So I was very interested in neurodegenerative disease. I was a postdoctoral fellow in Stan Prusner's lab before he won the Nobel Prize in 1997. And so I wanted to set up my own lab to understand what actually drives the neurodegenerative process. We wanted to understand the molecular details. You know, why is it that it's very common? Why is it that it's completely untreatable? As you know, the area of neurodegenerative disease has been the area of greatest biomedical therapy failure. Yeah. Uh, whether you have frontotemporal dementia or Lewy body or Alzheimer's or ALS, we just tell you we're very sorry. Yeah. And so we wanted to understand why that is. And we spent years doing this and actually went to the, to the buck uh, from San Diego because at the time they were just going to open this new research institute that was on aging. And I had this wonderful opportunity to be the founding president and CEO. So I thought, okay, let's, let's begin to understand this underlying process. And the surprise was when we looked at it, it's quite different than the usual claim about Alzheimer's, which is that it's some sort of misfolded protein. And you, and the problem in the brain is that your proteins aren't folding correctly. Well, sure. As part of a much larger problem. But what we found is that this is really, a, if you go to the heart of what Alzheimer's is, it is an insufficiency. And so you've got on the positive side, you've got the synaptoblastic things that are supporting you, as you know, things like your hormones and your trophic factors and your nutrients and your energetics, your mitochondrial function, blood flow, oxygenation. And on the negative side, you've got the things that are the demands. And those are things like anything, pathogens, toxins, anything that is creating more demand on the system. And when we're young, we balance those pretty nicely. But unfortunately for many of us, and this dwarf the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, unfortunately, as you know, we're looking at over 600,000 who've been killed by COVID-19, um, but about 45 million of the currently living Americans are destined to die of Alzheimer's if we don't find something that's really helpful. So it's a huge uh, pandemic. And so when you look at that, you see this balance and you see that, okay, everybody with Alzheimer's is on the wrong side of that balance. And you can literally trace the molecular pathway. The amyloid precursor protein itself sits in your neuronal membranes. And when things are bad, it is essentially protecting. It goes into a protective downsizing mode. And it's interesting because it's an analogy to what's happened to our country with COVID-19. We were all told about a year and a half ago to shelter in place and social distance. And of course, the country went into a recession, a protective downsizing mode. Your brain does that same thing through APP processing when you have supply that's not meeting the demand. And so you, so you involute. So we realized, okay, this is a very different model. We need to then, instead of just trying to get rid of amyloid, we need to look for each person as we started going through. And there are, you know, we initially identified 36 different contributors. The good news, it's not thousands, but it's dozens. 
And so we said, okay, to the patients, imagine you have a roof with 36 holes in it. You've got to close. A drug is an excellent way to patch one hole, but you've got to do the other ones. And I think in the long run, you know, drugs and and these precision medicine protocols, functional medicine protocols are going to work together to do this. But the surprise was just what you're studying. The surprise was, as we looked at these people, we saw that there was a whole group where mycotoxins were the critical players in this downsizing event, and which was really surprising because it hadn't really been in the literature. And so, uh, as you said, you, when you see these people, you really have to get on and treat their mycotoxicity. And of course, often they also have things like insulin resistance or sleep apnea or changes in their oral microbiome or gut microbiome, leaky gut and on and on and on. And so, you know, unlike this idea, you just write a prescription for one thing and you're going to cover all 36 holes with one little hunk of paper that just doesn't work. You really have to take a more functional medicine approach just as you do. Yeah. Gosh, I love that because I love that I was trained as a medical doctor and allopathic MD. We got great training just like you. And we have this wonderful toolboxes. I think drugs are absolutely appropriate, but what happens is with this personalized approach, the more functional medicine approach, we're going to root cause and we've right. got a bigger toolbox. So the exciting thing is now we have things that we didn't have before. Like some of the nutritional stuff, I wasn't trained in medical school. I had to learn postgraduately what does zinc do in these pathways and what does magnesium do? And, and then, um, even the hormonal stuff. It's interesting. We learned it all in second year. And then we have to kind of go back and relearn those metabolic pathways in depth because they actually really matter. Um, I love that you, you touched on, on amyloid plaques and some of the anti-amyloid drugs. Do you want to talk just a little bit about that? Because like you said, I want people to understand how that's actually protective. And when we start to attack, we saw these drugs didn't really work like we thought. Do you want to talk a little bit about amyloid and, and what the purpose is? Absolutely. And that's the big, you know, one of the big surprises, this was supposed to be the villain that was causing the disease, but it turns out it's a response to multiple different pathogens. It turns out to be an antimicrobial peptide, for example. So in fact, you've got this, your, your body is making this because you've got these various insults and the pathologists have already shown us. You look in the brains of patients with Alzheimer's, you see P. gingivalis from poor dentition. You see herpes simplex from the lip. You see molds from things like chronic sinusitis. You see spirochetes. So on and on, this stuff is making this to cover this again. So you've got to kind of think in a different way, instead of just getting rid of the amyloid, which is what these drugs do, uh, that you have to look at what's causing the amyloid and address those things. So as you indicated, back on June 7th, the FDA took a very unusual step. They approved a drug, Aduhelm, which is aducanumab, uh, that all of their 11 out of 11 of their experts on their panel said should not be approved. 10 of them strongly recommended against it. One of them said, I don't know. Nobody said this should be approved. And, you know, they thought, well, look, if you want to approve it, do another trial because one trial failed completely. One trial had a minimal benefit where it didn't make you better, but it actually made things go downhill slightly less quickly, 22%. But at the risk of 17% of the people developed micro hemorrhages within the brain, 40% of the developed brain swelling. So some people have described this as the gaff that keeps on giving because it was an unusual, unusual uh, decision. And in fact, three of the people from the board then resigned in protest. And of course, now there's actually a congressional inquest into what the heck happened? Yeah. Why was this approved? And not only does it not help you much, not only does it have side effects, it costs about $100,000 per year, 
thousand dollars for the drug. I know. I mean, it's really bizarre. And then, of course, more for the infusions and all the scans you have to get. So you're looking at about a hundred thousand dollars per year. And again, taking a functional medicine approach, far, far more effective, far, far cheaper, uh, and and uh, so really getting much, much better outcomes. Yeah, and so this is so important because again, we're if we had drugs that actually worked, there's nothing wrong with that. But what we're seeing yeah. is they're not addressing the root cause at this moment. And again, as we look, even your research, I think, is driving um, the the better thought process around what might actually help. Do you want to just frame your first book? Talked about the the different classes for people who aren't familiar with that. Um, first of all, the name of your first book. Repeat that for our listeners so they can. And where can they find your books? Because I think this is really important. Right. So the first book was called The End of Alzheimer's. And, and to be to be fair, that was a name that came from Random House, not from me. I get it. <laughs> uh, my, my name for the book was Wits End, which actually was suggested by my wife because that's both the research and the disease. And I thought that was a wonderful idea. Random House said nobody will ever buy a book called Wits End. So we're going to call it The End of Alzheimer's. Uh, we've gotten a little pushback on that. But the, the point was simply to say, okay, for the first time, we're beginning to understand what this process is. And it was about the science and about here are some people who've actually gotten better. Um, and recently, we finally got to the point of actually doing a clinical trial, which was now posted on MedArchive. Then after the first book, everybody said, hey, we want more details. Yeah. Uh, and so we then the second book was about details. And then the third book that just came out is all about the survivors talking about their stories and what they went through. And as you indicated, one of the parts of the first book was to say, well, look, when you start to look at all these different uh, all these different players, you're looking at inflammation and you're looking at the microbiome and all these things. What you find is Alzheimer's is not one disease. It's really six different subtypes. So there are people who are more on the inflammatory side, as you know, there are people who are more on the atrophic side. And then there's an interesting mix of those people who are glycotoxic, who have the insulin resistance that gives them the type two, the atrophic, but they also have the glycotoxicity. So they have non-enzymatic glycation of hundreds of proteins, which we measure as hemoglobin A1C, of course, but there are many others affected. And so they've got the worst of both worlds, very common problem. Mm -hmm. And then that's type 1.5. Then type three is tox toxins. And those, as you know, three different ones, the inorganics, including for all of us who've been in the Western fires, we are at increased risk. No question, air pollution increases your risk. And then the organics, things like glyphosate and toluene and benzene and things like that. And then of course, the biotoxins, uh, things like trichothecenes and all the things that you're dealing with on a daily basis. Uh, so that's type three, then type four is vascular, type five is traumatic. So these are, you know, different people have different presentations. And of course, as you said, you have to get to the root cause for each person. You have to have a personalized precision medicine type of approach to get the best outcomes. And, you know, we're seeing better and better outcomes in the trial that we just completed. And I was really honored to work with Dr. Ann Hathaway, Dr. Kat Toops, and Dr. Deborah Gordon. They were just fantastic. And of course, they sing your praises as well. Um, and they did a great job. And 84% of the people improved, didn't just slow their decline, but actually improved their scores. And the most exciting part is we now have people who are over nine years with sustained improvement, which was unheard of before. So we're very excited. And nevertheless, of course, there are a few people who don't. Yeah. And we'd like to understand why. What is being missed? Are they too far along? And if they are far along, are there things that we need to be adding? What is missing so that we can help every single person? The good news, since if you start early, just about everybody gets better. So reality is Alzheimer's is becoming an option. 
nobody really has to get this. If you simply get on prevention or early reversal, you have quite a window. Uh, SCI itself, subjective cognitive impairment, lasts on average 10 years. And that's a very early stage. The big concern, as you know, there's something called mild cognitive impairment. And as one of the seven survivors wrote, Frank, he said when his doctor first told him he had MCI, he said, there's nothing mild about this. Right. <laughs> and that's the problem. It's the third of four yeah. stages. It's not the pre-symptomatic. It's not the SCI, but yes. it's the third stage out of four. It's a little bit like telling someone, oh, don't worry, you've got mildly metastatic cancer. This yeah. is a relatively late stage. And so you absolutely want to get in and do everything possible, but prefer you know, preferably you never get to that stage. So I love this, Dr. Breslin, because again, I tend to, I don't, my, my uh, patient population isn't just like a brain clinic or an Alzheimer's. Right. But what I see is people in their twenties and thirties and forties, wow. young, young people. And so if you're listening and you're starting to have cognitive impairment of any type, this is not normal. And so find a doc who can help you find root cause, because literally if we, if we would get awareness of people in their twenties and thirties and forties, we could probably make even a bigger change because that's where you have complete plasticity to make a difference and to see your toxic load and to see your metabolic status before you actually, I always think of health as a trajectory and we're either walking towards disease or away from it. And so if yeah. you're proactive as a younger person, you can actually change this. You can find your APOE4 status um, if you have that or not, because that's going to make you at higher risk, meaning you need to start earlier for prevention. Now, I wanted to mention your type threes, which is that toxic. Again, that's a right. primarily part of my practice. I had yeah. just an incident, just three of those things in my personal brain health. Recently, we had the fires. And if yeah. you look, I've got an article coming out this week on all the toxic metals, chemicals, benzenes, things that are in this fire smoke. We're seeing Dr. Ackerley and I just talked TGF beta, which is an inflammatory marker in the yeah. blood will go up just from the smoke from the fires. So some of these things are actually affecting markers in the blood. And I had that instance with my breathing. And then I got my car was in a little accident, fender bender, minor thing, but it had to be painted. I got it back from the auto body shop. And for two days, I literally was narcoleptic. I get out of that car after 30 minutes, the VOCs from that toxic auto body paint, the benzenes and those chemicals, they put me comatose for almost two days. I thought it was worse than a mold exposure. And so people who are in that industry, um, again, if you're not aware, those things are so toxic to the brain. And then I pulled up the studies and there are lawsuits out for people who've been in paint and body shops for auto body types of things because it's so toxic, the benzenes and stuff. So we had the smoke from the fires for me, the, and I had all these experiences and then recently I had a friend who had ketomium in the house and I had an exposure oh, there and yeah. same thing. It just like for a whole 24 hours, I could not think I could not function. So this is very real. I'm in my forties. And so, and again, I have real good cognitive. I don't feel like I have impairment, but even so just those exposures in, in one day, take me out. It makes it really difficult to process. So we need to be thinking about how we can have a good air quality and how we can actually prevent, because like you said, you're getting these people and you're making reversal. So when they're diagnosed and then people like me, my job is to find the pre uh, preclinical states and how do we keep people from ever walking towards that disease? And we should, that's the thing. This, this disease should be a very rare disease. It's because people don't realize that. And we're all told there's nothing you can do and they wait too long. Yes. And you brought up a critical issue, which is brain fog. This yes. is something that affects so many people. And of course, with COVID-19, it's becoming even more important. There's a big concern that in the future, we'll have a huge increase in Alzheimer's disease because of all these people who've gotten COVID-19 and have had some brain fog, gotten better, but now are at risk for 
decline because there's no question this virus does affect the brain. It does infect the vessels within the brain, for example. It's got the neuroinflammation as part of it. So it really does, by multiple mechanisms, increase your risk. And as you know, there have already been a few patients with Parkinson's that came on literally with the COVID-19. So there is a concern that there will be uh, you know, a neurotropic-related uh, effects of this virus down the road. And therefore, anybody, we always recommend anyone who's had this, uh, please get on prevention. Please get what we call a cognoscopy. Yes. Uh, you know, everyone knows you should get a colonoscopy when you turn 50. And we'll recommend for everyone who's 45 or over, please get a cognoscopy. It's actually uh, uh, much more pleasant than a colonoscopy. Uh, and you can find out where you stand and see just the sort of things you were just talking about. If you, have you got exposure to these various things? Because they will indeed increase your risk. So love this. And I want to talk about, cause you're training doctors. And so I you have a limited practice and you, you know, but there are doctors out there and the ones you mentioned that you're doing research with, there's some good friends of both of ours that are doing this. Um, how do people find your work and the doctors who've been trained with the recode in that? Tell us just a little about for those people listening, how do they find a good doctor that does what you have been teaching? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, so you can just go on drbredison.com or you can go on apollohealthco.com. We're working with Apollo Health because we believe that the future of medicine is in larger data sets. It's so interesting to me. You know, Google knows where you shop. Google knows a lot about your life. And so they're, you know, they, they're gathering all these data. And yet, why is it that we as physicians aren't gathering in these incredibly complicated people that we're dealing with, human organisms, we should be looking at much, much larger data sets. But of course, the way you and I were trained, um, and especially way back in the caveman era, when I yeah. was trained, is I'm much older, but, but back then, you know, people would basically say, what's the disease, make a diagnosis, write a prescription, or send them to surgery. And there was no asking why. There was no understanding physiological changes. If someone had hypertension, you wrote a prescription for antihypertensives instead of asking why did they get hypertension. So I think this is, you know, this is part of 21st century medicine. Love it. And, and what I'm finding, I mean, years ago, I was the outcast in medical school who did, you know, integrative club that I brought in different modalities right. and, and exposure uh, at Loyola. I was, and I was one of the first that was kind of really talking about it in med school, but what's wow. interesting now is people thought I was a little crazy back then. And now my colleagues, they call me all the time and say, Jill, I have this problem. I can't solve. Do you have any, because they see that all of us see, we went into medicine wanting to heal people. Right. And if our heart right. is in that healer space, when we encounter things that we don't have answers to, we say, why? We say, is there anything else? So that's why you and I and all of our colleagues that are doing this are open to other things. And my thing is always risk benefit analysis. If there's like yeah. something like adding extra vitamin C or checking hormone status, and the risk is very low with an intervention, yeah. even if I don't know for sure that there's a very large randomized controlled trial out there to prove it, I will often try things that I feel like are incredibly safe because the risk is very low. And that's how I usually determine, you know, what kinds of things. And then we have people like you who are putting out the research to support the things that we're doing as intervention and to continue putting out good research um, on the things that we can do because we have a lot of control. We're led to believe that we don't. And if you're listening and you think it's hopeless, it's not. <laughs> There's a lot of hope out there. Um, so that's where people can find. And then um, what, uh, tell us about this new book. And it sounds like patient stories. Tell us about more about that. Well, you know, when the very first person we call patient zero started back in April of 2012, I mean, all I had to offer was a, a person had told her she lived on the East Coast, you know, come out to the West Coast, there's some sort of research going on out here. You know, I hadn't seen a patient in 20 years. Uh, just we were looking at Alzheimer's, 
and Alzheimer's and cells dying and things like that. Yeah. And so she asked me if I would see this person. I said, well, look, I, you know, I, I don't see patients, but I'm happy to talk to her. We spent several hours going through the whole idea and what this is. And she took this back to her doctor. And then she called me about three months later and said, I cannot believe it. My memory is better than it's been in 20 years. You know, this theory seems to be working. So I was really excited at the time. I thought, wow, you know, we've been doing this and we've been turned down for a clinical trial back in 2011. So we then started, you know, started getting more and more people. And the, as you know, the best thing of all, after all of the discussion about the models, after all the discussion about the various approaches to this, the best thing of all is to hear from someone that they're better, yeah. to hear how it's changed their lives. And people would say, you know, my children are so happy. And uh, uh, Julie's story, she mentions uh, that, uh, you know, her son was crying when she first told him, I I've got Alzheimer's. And she was APOE 4-4. So she's at the highest risk group. She's already having significant problems. She went to a neurologist and she said, could you at least keep me where I am? And he said, good luck with that, which was very unfortunate because he just felt there's nothing we can do. So, uh, she, you know, her son was crying. She got better. And so she just recently went to her son's wedding. So these are the best stories, hearing of how people have done better. As you said, we all went into medicine. We all want the same thing. We want to see people get better. And this has been an area where people don't get better. And so one of the things we're trying to do now is can we adapt the chemistry of this for all of these other diseases? And we're so we have a few the initial people with macular degeneration that has its own chemistry. And can we now adapt this for Lewy body and for various other things? Although to be fair, the Lewy body people are very much like type three. They're the toxic ones as well. And they respond pretty well. So that, that was the idea. I thought, okay, I'd love to have a number of the people who've gone through this and done well and written these wonderful emails or phone calls. I'd love to have them write their stories about how did it impact their families. Deborah is another one, just amazing. She's a brilliant attorney who went to Harvard. She lives back East. And she wrote about how her father, a, a brilliant neurologist died of Alzheimer's. Her father's mother also died of Alzheimer's. When she was getting the first symptoms, she knew it because she had seen her, what her father went through. She looked at her children and realized, oh my gosh, you know, what's next? And so she then ended up going, she was actually evaluated at a major medical school and they showed that she had actually improved uh, and, and said to her, like, what are you doing here? How, how come you're better? And she's, you know, she's done very well. She wrote a beautiful story about what this meant to her and to her family. And so I thought, not only is it wonderful for people to see these heartfelt stories and to get inspiration to say, hey, I can do this too. We really can reduce the global burden of dementia. But also they talk about what worked best for them. Yeah. What are the things that actually help them the most? What are the things that help them the least? So it really gives you some pointers as well as some inspiration. Oh gosh, I love that. And, and it's a team approach because if you have someone with subjective or uh, moderate or mild cognitive decline, you really need some, uh, you know, the family members and the caretakers and everybody involved. So it sounds like you're telling that story as well. Um, so I know we have a lot of physicians who listen to us too, Dr. Bredesen, and if they're listening and they're like, I want to learn this protocol, um, tell us more about where, can, where do you uh, offer training? Is it, where would you recommend that a doc who wants to know more about how to treat patients go for more education? Yeah, and, and we just set up a new uh, Recode 2.0 uh, several months ago. I mean, there are now over 2,000 people who've gone through the training, uh, physicians from 10 different countries and all over the USA, as you know. 
Uh, and so they can go, you can see this, um, again, you can go to drbredison.com or you can go to apollohealthco.com and, and the training is offered there. Perfect. And it's online, so it's available Beautiful. all around I the love world. that because we really need to reach um, more and more. And so we'll be including those links wherever you're listening to this. Um, we will include those links so you can check that out as well. Um, so I don't want to go too deep because we go really deep with what do you do for diagnosis, but just an overview, there is a big panel of labs that you recommend and that I draw on these patients. We don't have to go through all of them, but um, let's talk maybe about just classes like hormones and minerals and, yes. things. and then also the Cognoscope. What would you involve in a person who's just wanting a diagnosis? Um, what basic things would you involve for that um, if they wanted to ask their doctor for those tests? It's a great point because, as you know, you don't really need to do as much for someone who's just there for prevention, assuming that they're doing well on their testing. So when we talk about a cognoscopy, we include as part of that uh, a simple online cognitive assessment because, as you know, this can sneak up on people. We've had people come in for prevention, and it turns out they have fairly significant MCI. We had one woman who we had a MOCA of 23 and actually she was treated, went up to a MOCA of third perfect score of 30s doing very, very well. So as you indicated, what we want to do is we want to look at the very things that are the root causes. So we need to understand something about the inflammatory side and then all the different subtypes that I mentioned. So we'd like to look at things like HSCRP and TGF beta one, but we'd also like to know what's driving this. So do you have uh, you know, poor oral microbiome. And so we do look at uh, an oral microbiome for people. Uh, we want to know what your gut status is. Um, and this was all included, uh, in, by the way, in, in the uh, trial that we did with, with Anne and Kat and Deborah. Um, and we want to know then the basic markers for inflammation. We want to know your HOMA IR. So we want to know your metabolic status. As you know, this is such a common contributor. Even if it's not the only contributor, it's a common contributor. And there are about 80 million Americans or so with insulin resistance. So this is a common problem. And this is, as you know, this is a problem for your brain. We used to grow brain cells. When we were in the lab, we'd grow brain cells in a dish and you always had to include insulin in the medium or else they would die. So it is a very important growth factor for your brain as our NGF, BDNF, these other things that we're trying to improve. So we'd like to know where you stand with your glycotoxicity. And then we'd like to know where you stand with your various hormones and your various nutrients. And as you know, many of the same risk factors for poor outcomes for COVID-19 are the same ones for Alzheimer's. So low vitamin D, mm -hmm. uh, hypertension, obesity, insulin resistance, vascular disease. These are all for both metabolic syndrome. All of these things are important in both of these. So we, we'd like to look at all those. And that includes things like your thyroid status, uh, and, and, you know, free T3, not just TSH, but looking at more, uh, very much at an IFM sort of approach. Um, and then we'd like to know what your vascular status. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, as you know, that's not always easy. Uh, and more and more, we're finding that that is a, a critical one, the energetic part of this. So it's the vascularity, and then it's the oxygenation. And we're looking at things like uh, your nocturnal oxygenation. What is your SpO2? Um, are you dropping that? So many people are without realizing it. And I do think that some of these wearables very helpful these days because people are now doing things like looking at their Apple watch and saying, oh my gosh, you know, I dropped to 85% oxygen saturation last night. Um, that's a concern. Is there something going on here? And that can absolutely be a contributor. And of course, mitochondrial function. And interestingly, some of these you know, this is really evolving in real time. Um, and so, as you know, you know, some of the issues that I'm sure you've dealt with uh, and uh, for example, with 
people have suggested methylene blue as an example for something that may be helpful. Not clear yet, not proven. And is this something that you like to use or not? Oh, so I love that you mentioned this because one of the things I see now, I'm just going to take a side note really quick. One of my yeah. really good friends is the neurosurgeon for the Denver Broncos. So what he sees is concussion wow. and how concussion contributes to you know, early onset dementia, those kinds yeah. of things, and even just cognitive decline in general. And he said over and over the literature, he's a conventional neurosurgeon, although he knows functional medicine. And he said, Jill, there is no doubt the data supports that um, if you have a plain old concussion and you have no infection, no toxic load, no metabolic insufficiency, and no inflammation, um, you're probably going to be fine. It's concussion plus, which is exactly yes. what we're talking about here. So it's yeah. concussion plus Lyme disease and infection. I want to talk about that in just a second, or toxicity like mold and mold and Lyme happen to filter to the top of our radar because they're so toxic. It doesn't right. mean that other viruses like Epstein-Barr or HSV or CMV or Coxsackie or other toxins like benzenes don't contribute, but we just happen to you and I see a lot of this mycotoxin and a lot of Lyme. So methylene blue happens to be really effective against uh, an infection called Bartonella and Bartonella particularly affects the brain and nervous system, probably worse than anything else. In fact, just yesterday, I had a consult with a 19 year old college student who had uncontrolled rage and out of control anxiety. Turns out Bartonella was the player and it was his mental wow. status. And it was really profound to see like how it affected his family and him and how, when he described it, it was like, it was out of um, proportion to what he knew himself to be. If I can say that, it was almost like the infection really contributed to his right. response, his irritability, his almost like the brain was overwhelmed or the brain was on fire. We use those terms, but, and it's really relative, whether it's a young person with infection or an older person with Alzheimer's, it's brain on fire in different ways, right? So I think the methylene blue and some of these even antibiotic regimens um, or um, anti-mold regimens, are so critical because these are surprisingly inflammatory to the brain. I think some of the worst brain imaging that I see is related to mold and Lyme. It really does affect the brain. Very interesting because of course it also has the effect to bypass. If you've got, if you look at mitochondrial complexes, mm -hmm. complex one is typically abnormal in Parkinson's. With Alzheimer's, it's been complex four that's been associated. So at least theoretically, mm -hmm. if you have an inhibitor of complex one, you may actually be able to bypass that with methylene blue. Again, that's theory. And I think there's a lot yeah. that we don't know yet, but so we wanna look at all these different things. And then we wanna look at your mitochondrial function, as I mentioned earlier, and where do you stand with ketosis? You need something, you know, you need to, to get the blood there. You need to get the oxygen there, but you'd have to have a substrate to burn. And of course, most of these people who are developing cognitive decline are not metabolically flexible. So they're not able to go back and forth between ketosis and, and uh, burning glucose. And that's actually critical. And so again, getting them to optimize this is very, very helpful. Let's talk about diet a little, because that's one of the core components of what we do with intervention and what you've taught in all of your uh, trainings all of this time. I know you're a big fan of ketogenic diet, and I completely right. agree. Well, let's talk about real quickly, like what for the layperson, what, why is that important? And what are there some subtypes that may not do as well in ketogenic diet? Yeah, this is a really good point. And, and you know, I, I, like you, did not train as a nutritionist. Yeah. So I, and I, when I went to medical school, there was a single course on nutrition and it was optional. And I took it and I just learned one thing, which or is it was on TPN, the IV after surgery, right? Like total parenteral nutrition. Exactly. <laughs> so the, the fact of the matter is, you know, we're agnostic. Whatever helps the brain the most is what we want to use. So what we've what we've looked at is something we call KetoFlex 12.3. And the, it's a simple idea that we'd like 
to drive people into mild ketosis. Now, why do we want to do that? As you said, when you look at a PET scan, you can actually see for people who are APOE4 positive, you can see often in their late 20s, there are already decreases in glucose utilization in the temporal and parietal regions. And that is the hallmark of Alzheimer's, the signature of Alzheimer's disease. So you want to be able to bridge that gap. And as Dr. Stephen Kinane has taught all of us over the years, you can bridge that gap with increasing ketones. So now you're able to burn not just glucose where you're not doing a perfect job. Now you add the ketones and you get into you know, mild ketosis, 1.0 to 4.0 millimolar beta hydroxybutyrate or so. It helps you. So when we see people with cognitive decline, to me, that is an energetic emergency. We already know that things aren't going well in the temporal and parietal regions with glucose utilization. So we want to do a couple things at once. We want to start making them insulin sensitive. We want to make them now metabolically flexible, and we want to get them into some ketosis so that they bridge that gap. And they often notice, oh my gosh, I'm sharper when I have the ketones on board. Now, as you indicated, there's a concern because people who are very thin can have trouble with this. They don't have the fat to burn. So we recommend, okay, at the beginning, just do exogenous ketone, do some MCT oil or some coconut oil or some, uh, you know, or some uh, ketone ester or salt just to get it up there. That's the quick fix. Over time, you can drive yourself into endogenous ketosis, which has some advantages over exogenous ketosis. But because there is an energy emergency at the beginning, please address that. And it should help you because we worry, again, the people who are very thin, they're trying to get themselves into ketosis. Now they have no glucose, they have no ketones, and they actually get worse. So you have to be very, very careful. I love that you clarify, because again, so many people benefit, but there's a small subset. Um, I find them more likely atrophic, the the older, the ones that are deficient in some of the hormones, because those hormones, if you have low cortisol and low estrogen loads, you often are less flexible with burning ketones as your fuel versus sugar. So and you try to go into fasting and, and it makes things work. <laughs> and then also um, the gut's such a big player because if you have celiac or Crohn's or some of these things with the gut and you have malabsorption of fats, then you can eat all the fats in the world and they go right through you and you're having trouble getting them to the sources, to the cells that actually need them. Um, and then one last category, the APOE44s, I find that, again, I'd love your opinion on this, but sometimes because you need a really high fat diet, you definitely need to moderate the sources of fats because if you're doing really high saturated fats, you're going to drive their um, issues with the APOE4 and the hyperlipidemia up a little. Any thoughts on those particular people, the APOE4-4s and, and fat? Absolutely. Content? Yes. And we did some work for years on the molecular mechanisms of APOE4. And what we found very surprising, APOE4 actually enters the nucleus, interacts with 1700 different gene promoters and literally changes the programming of your cell toward a more pro-inflammatory state. So it is again, protecting you. And it's why, presumably why it's the primordial. It's what allowed us to come down on the, off the trees and be walking around the savanna and you know stepping on dung and things like that. So yes, you're absolutely right. With the four fours, you wanna make several adjustments. Number one, be careful about their lipid status. You wanna look at their LDL particle number and you wanna, number two, you wanna give them more on the unsaturated fat. Yes. So more toward the EVOOs and things like that and away from the coconut oil. You wanna be a little bit careful about that. And they do tend to absorb it. They are better absorbers. Yes than the APOE4 negatives. And then the third thing is you wanna remember that APOE4 itself 
is a pro-inflammatory gene. And it's interesting, we're starting to see how all these things match up with the immune system. So A-beta itself is part of the innate immune system. And just as people with COVID-19 die from cytokine storm, people in Alzheimer's die from cytokine drizzle because you've got this smoldering long-term problem with these cytokines. And A-beta is essentially one, it's part of that innate immune system. ApoE4 also, we see very clearly is a pro-inflammatory gene. One of the things that it affects with these 1700 gene promoters it turns down some of the genes that normally limit the inflammatory response. So now you have less of a turning down of your pro-inflammatory response. So that's where things like resolvins can be very useful. Oh, that makes so much sense. And like you said, there is the protective benefit is they tend not to be more the toxic and infectious type as much. So they're more this inflammatory. And then uh, the APOE33s are the ones we see with the type three toxic. Again, that's a generalization, but there's a little right. bit of a tendency in that direction. Um, so there, yeah. So in our last few minutes, what's on the horizon? Is there anything that's being studied or kind of new in this protocol or that you see being potentially something we'll look more towards in the future? Where are we headed with this research? Yeah, this is a great point. So we're now moving to a larger trial, which we'll be starting. And again, uh, with uh, Anne and Kat and Deborah, we'll be starting and actually with probably also uh, a few others because this is going to be a larger study. Um, so that should start next year. Um, second thing is to now, as I mentioned earlier, adapt this to other things. Can we now, if we, we understand the root cause, just as you said, what about if we look at macular degeneration, Lewy body, ALS? I mean, ALS has been one of the ones, as a neurologist, this is one of the ones that bothered me the most. These people go downhill relatively rapidly. It's a relatively common disease, unfortunately, and it's just horrible. So we need to now look at the appropriate chemistry for that and go after that. So we started something called the ARC, the ARC trial. So we're just looking at very small numbers of people with each of these different diseases to see if we, if we study them very deeply, if we do a deep dive, you know, can we see uh, improvements. And then the third thing is something called the SARA trial, which is coming up. Um, and this is severe Alzheimer's reversal attempt. So the question then is, we all, we'd love to get everybody at the SCI or early MCI stage. And we, we had even some people into the Alzheimer's stage in this recent trial. But what about the people who have MOCA scores that are single digits? Um, and some of the, interestingly, as you know, some of them really do get better. They don't get all the way better. They get somewhat better. Now, it, sometimes it makes a huge difference. They can dress themselves, they can speak again, but often they don't get better. And I, I really want a, a quick shout out here uh, to, to your friend, uh, Dr. Heather Sanderson, uh, down in San Diego, who's opened Marama, which is the first assisted living facility I'm aware of that's doing the same sort of approach and seeing people improve in their assisted wow. living facility. But what do we do? We'd love for people never to get to Alzheimer's, but for those who are far along, what are the things we have to add? You've talked about intranasal trophic factors. You've talked about some of the peptides you've used, some beautiful approaches that you've taken. Stem cells, another one, and you've talked about this before as well. I think all of these things have potential roles. We need to, again, understand the chemistry well enough to know what are the critical pieces to take people who are fairly far along and bring them back as far as we can. 
Yeah. Oh, I love that. And it, and this is just so encouraging. Like I said, I'm excited because I want to share it with physicians, but also patients listening and talk to your doctor, get, get them excited about what's uh, potential out there because they can go to Dr. Uh, Dale Bredesen's website and get more information. And you might be the person, if you're the patient asking them, um, you might be the person that encourages them to get more training. We need more doctors trained. Uh, Dr. Bredesen, I can't thank you enough for your work. I really, you are up there in the top, you know, handful of doctors. I, I have such great respect for so many. You are up there in my book on what you've provided to the world, the, the depth of information you've added and the information that you've given to us as clinicians, you know, down in the trenches to help us with our practice. So I publicly want to say thank you so much for the work you're doing. I just uh, love, love following that and continue to support it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And you are doing such great work and getting so many people better. So thank you. And as you mentioned earlier, you're also seeing people younger and really preventing the problems of the future. So thank you for the great work you're doing. And I look forward to the day when all medical schools will teach modern medicine. That would be fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Bredesen. Um, Hopefully we'll probably do a part two of this at some point. (laughs) Thank you, Dr. Jill. So great to talk to you. You too. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye.